This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has tons of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello, a new edition translated by Gregory Elliott. In this major work, sociologists Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello go to the heart of the changes in contemporary capitalism. Via an unprecedented analysis of the latest management texts that have formed the thinking of employers in their reorganization of business, the authors trace the contours of a new spirit of capitalism. They argue that from the middle of the 1970s onwards, capitalism abandoned the hierarchical Fordist work structure and developed a new network-based form of organization that was founded on employee initiative and autonomy in the workplace, a freedom that came at the cost of material and psychological security. The authors connect this new spirit with the children of the libertarian and romantic currents of the late 1960s, as epitomized by dressed-down cool capitalists like Bill Gates and Ben and Jerry, arguing that they practice a more successful and subtle form of exploitation. Now a classic work charting the sociological structure of neoliberalism, Boltanski and Cipello show how the new spirit triumphed thanks to a remarkable recuperation of the left's critique of the alienation of everyday life that simultaneously undermined their social critique. In this new edition, the two authors reflect on the reception of the book and the debates that it has stimulated. The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski and Eve Cipello. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The cameras have moved on, but Baltimore's crisis continues. As temperatures plummeted a few weeks back, students in the city's funding-starved public school system were left wearing full winter gear in the classroom because the heating wasn't working. The startling image was a fitting exemplar of just how starkly segregated by race and class American life remains in 2018, not only in Baltimore, but in most every corner of the country. Government has long redistributed vast quantities of wealth to the super-rich and deployed police to manage poor people, especially poor people of color, who are provided with separate and unequal schools and then excluded from the labor market. Baltimore is a window into a pathology that pervades American political economy across the board. My guest today is Lester Spence, a professor of political science and Africana studies at John Hopkins University, who specializes in the study of black, racial, and urban politics in the wake of the neoliberal turn. He is the author of Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop in Black Politics, and also Knocking the Hustle, Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. Before we get started, I want to thank you for listening and to ask you to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. I'm so grateful that you tune in for these lengthy and sometimes very lengthy discussions about politics. Unlike a lot of what is available in the podcast universe, we don't spoon feed you anything. We talk about class conflict, racism, patriarchy, and empire in depth 
it's part of what I think is a really exciting collective effort underway around the world to develop an analysis that we can all use in our efforts to transform society, or at the very least, to keep it from getting a lot more crappy in the short term. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And here's the show. Lester Spence, welcome to The Dig. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I know you've been trying to get me out here for a second. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you had the, you were the longest running unrequited standing invitation um, after Bernie Sanders, whose office I've been bugging forever. So, so I'm glad to finally have you on. Cool. <laughs> now that you agreed to be on, maybe, maybe he'll, maybe if he's listening out there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You recently wrote a piece for Jacobin about Baltimore schools where during the recent freezing temperatures, heating systems weren't working and students had to wear their full winter gear in class. Yeah. Um, before we get into more detail and context, just tell me about this episode. What happened? Um, Baltimore got hit by a, um, a bomb cyclone. That's actually a meteoro- meteorological <laughs> term to, to refer to a moment where you've got this intense dynamic that usually generates uh, colder than normal temperatures and then also, in some cases, a massive snowfall. So I, uh, I think uh, like the Upper East Coast got the snowfall and we got the, the significant drop in temperatures. And then a lot of, in a lot of instances, you know, you've got aging infrastructure and pipes burst. And I think that's what was the case in a number of schools within Baltimore. And um, rather than canceling schools, or rather than canceling school, uh, what ended up happening is that students in a number of schools had to basically go to school and keep their winter gear on. And uh, a a teacher ended up taping, uh, taping it, uh, like maybe on Instagram, posting it, and then all of a sudden became viral. In the photo that I saw, it was a bunch of students in their winter clothes with their heads down. I'm assuming the teacher asked them to put their heads down to not expose minors, you know, faces yeah. in yeah. in the media. But it's a remarkable photo of just this classroom full of kids wearing heavy winter jackets, and their teacher, if I'm if we're talking about the same photo, in the back of the room with her jacket on. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, the thing is, is um, you know, so something like that, as soon as it's posted, it becomes viral you end up having kind of two uh, two responses and then a, a little bit of a range in between. On the one hand, you've got a number of people who don't believe public schools function well anyway, particularly in urban, predominantly black uh, spaces like Baltimore. So they just think of this as being par for the course. And then on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, uh, black folk, you know, the people who are more uh, black working class folk who are most likely to send their kids um, into these schools are really, really, really up in arms. And then they're supporters, right? So um, the school board meeting right after this, it was overflowing, and they actually had to add, I believe, like uh, like um, video units to basically uh, post video of the meeting because you had so much spillover in, uh, for the school meeting. So were there people who actually publicly argued in this case that these heating systems failing were reflective of the 
internal pathology of the Baltimore public school system? Well, yeah, implicitly. Um, so implicitly, what you had is uh, politically, you had kind of a finger point game where the where political officials in the city of Baltimore uh, point to Republican Governor uh, Hogan, and then Governor Hogan points to uh, points to Baltimore, and then using uh, using examples of waste to suggest that this is again just par for the course. Um, another important dynamic of this, and we'll probably get to it in a second, is that uh, in response to this, um, a graduate student from uh, Coppin State, Coppin State is a uh, historically black uh, college in Baltimore, she went to the, uh, she actually conducted a GoFundMe campaign just to raise money for heaters. And I think she got, I think maybe she asked for $20,000. I think she got something like a triple lap. I want to ask you about the school funding crisis in Baltimore. On the one hand, there's the simple question of how much state money and local money is flowing in and federal money is flowing into the schools. And I don't know much about that in in Baltimore, but I know very well from Philadelphia how much tight state funding to poor, overwhelmingly black public school systems can really can really starve them. Yeah. Um, and then there's the larger picture that you describe in your in in your piece in Jacobin of of a city that has spent billions to subsidize developments for business and the wealthy, while life in recent over the past few decades in Baltimore for everyday residents has just become ever more dystopian. Uh, yes, yes. So here are some dynamics which um, which distinguish Baltimore, I believe, from a school system like Philadelphia, and then definitely from a school system I'm really familiar with, like Detroit, right? So one of the things that's unique about Baltimore is Baltimore actually has uh, the uh, a, a lot of solid regulations to kind of uh, place charters under public control, right? So, for example, in comparison to other places where charters can pretty much hire anybody with very little oversight, no unions, um, uh, Baltimore actually, you know, if you're in a charter school and you're a teacher, you have to be part of the union, uh, a lot of regulatory oversight, right? So that's kind of a, that gives uh, the listener a sense that there are, idiosyncratic dynamics that make Baltimore more progressive in some ways than other school systems under what I call the neoliberal turn, right, where you've got people uh, suggesting that public schools in general should be run like businesses, where you see an increase, a significant increase in charters, often with little to no regulation. Baltimore, compared to Philly, Detroit, New Orleans, privatization has, has been checked in a certain, to a certain extent. Yes, and that's important to note. Um, however, at the same time, you've got this dynamic uh, whereby school systems, where um, Baltimore, like other school systems, their budgets are uh, attached to two different dynamics. One is property taxes, local property taxes, and then second is just the number of students in the school. So we do see uh, a significant outflow, uh, significant decrease in the number of students in Baltimore school system, and that reduces the budget a bit. And then, um, and then, interestingly enough, you've got an increase in property values, which ends up reducing the amount of money the state basically gives the city as a form of um, set aside. Isn't the wrong? Isn't the right word for it? Um, I'm, I'm 
I'm missing. I'll, I'll come back to that. But there's a for, but there's a formula. I it seems yeah. like you're saying where uh, if if local property values raise and thus local property tax revenue raises, then yeah. the states then the state's contribution falls. Yes, that's right. That's that's right. Um, now the now the odd thing about now the interesting thing about that, and that this gets to the three point seven billion dollar figure I I, uh, I used in the piece is that the reason that property values have increased is because of the money that the cities put into development. So you've got a lot of development, particularly around the Inner Harbor area, and those properties, uh, in some cases, they were on vacant land. Now those properties are worth a lot of money. But the thing is, is they're not actually paying property taxes, right? Because of the deals that were cut, they often are paying little to no property tax. So in this case, the the the, the school system, you know, the public, uh, the school systems in general are kind of like, uh, and in the pub, the sense of the public good and uh, kind of broadly is like doubly hamstrung, right? And that wow. they're spending public money on development, and then they're not actually once the development occurs, they're not actually able to get the benefits in the form of property taxes. So then the state withholds money, right? That's wild. So the formula is tethered to property values as a proxy for property taxes, but not to the property taxes themselves. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's weird. For for listeners who haven't um, made their way to the Mid-Atlantic, I think it's, if you could underline and tell a little about the history of the redevelopment of Baltimore, particularly the Inner Harbor, because I, speaking of things that make Baltimore distinct, yeah. um, I think the divide between the Inner Harbor and the rest of the city is unlike anything I've seen in any city in this country. Yeah, and um, so Baltimore is an industrial town, long industrial history, and then there's this moment in the early to mid '70s where, uh, where like other cities like it, uh, it's uh, the industrial sector just kind of falls out. As manufacturers first moved to the suburbs, then to a certain extent to the south and uh, and the west, and then and then um, overseas, right? So people have to figure out what do we do with these spaces because the cities rely so much on uh, the manufacturing sector that when the manufacturing sector leaves, the you know urban uh, the revenue in the city significantly drops like a rock, and the cities are left with working class populations they can't really provide goods and services for. So what ends up happening is they end up coming up with the idea to use public funds to develop the inner harbor and they identify tourism as kind of a new revenue stream. So uh, so um, in early, uh, a 70s era Baltimore mayor, I want to say Schaefer, but don't get me to lying, ends up getting together a group of people that propose this idea of redeveloping the inner harbor. Uh, and they use public funds. At the outset, they actually use public funds, but they also have kind of, a, uh, they have a, cer- a certain deg- degree of control over where the development occurs, right? So it's like basically political elites saying, well, okay, we're going to subsidize this dynamic, but we're going to subsidize this in ways that we, t- we tell you what to do and you just do what we say. Right. But gradually with the development in inner harbor and then with its quote unquote success and then the growing uh, power that capital has both in general, but then also uh, kind of emboldened by a number of public policy changes, you see that dynamic reverse to the point where uh, it becomes routine for uh, for public forces to use 
public monies, and then the developers basically do with it what they want. And if anything, maybe the uh, political officials will make requests. Um, and even in some cases, this has to be done um, basically through political organizing, right? So what we see is the Inner Harbor develop to take up uh, to take up more and more kind of symbolic space in Baltimore's budget. And over the course of a few decades, they am just spending like 3.7 billion in subsidizing just in the Inner Harbor and kind of related projects alone, right? So uh, here I'm talking about the Inner Harbor, but uh, I'd also include something like. Uh, M&T Bank Stadium, where the uh, Ravens play, which was significantly subsidized with public funds. I want to ask you about the, the the people making these political decisions. And in Baltimore, the political establishment is thoroughly black. I don't know how how big how big a city council. I want to say thirteen, but I think it's more than thirteen. There are probably just a handful of of white faces on that that body. I'm guessing and. It's, you know, evidence if we needed any more such evidence that there are some serious limits to a political program that that prioritize above all else kind of a superficial diversity amongst political and other elites. But but my question is, what do you make of the Baltimore political establishment in terms of is 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 it them as kind of independent, autonomous, neoliberal actors doing horrible Things or is the city's weakness vis-a-vis capital and vis-a-vis the state and federal government so intense that they're really structurally determined to some degree to make horrible yeah. decisions? Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of dynamics going on. So there are 14 city councilmen or uh, city council persons rather, and because Baltimore actually Baltimore is majority black, but it's not like a Detroit, right? It's 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 so you've got actually a number of white city council persons, right? So it's uh, it's racially diverse, um, but the thing is, is there are a couple of different structural dynamics. One dynamic is that we've got actually a strong mayor system, where the mayor, where the city council actually only has a limited degree of oversight over, and some of it's symbolic over what the mayor can do, right? So even if we've got a dynamic where as a result of the Baltimore uprising, uh, we were able to, you know, uh, organizers and activists in the city were able to generate the energy to replace, I think, six city council persons with progressive, with more progressive members, those city council, yeah, those city council persons could only have a limited effect over the mayor, right? So that's one structural dynamic. So if you get... If you get a, a mayor in place, uh, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, the woman who just who sat uh, who just was uh, decided not to run this last time around, she was pretty much a, a neoliberal candidate. And then Catherine Pugh, the woman who replaced her, although she articulated a range of support for a range of progressive policies, including increasing the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, once she was elected, all that stuff kind of went out the window, right? So that's one structural dynamic. The other structural dynamic is this long legacy of of uh, of racial um, discrimination and segregation in housing, right? So you've got so Baltimore was the first city in the country to pass legislation res- uh, 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 segregating uh, its space, right, by by race and to a certain extent by ethnicity. Um, and then when the government got into the uh, federal government got into the housing business. And they created this kind of redlining process to distinguish 
uh, neighborhoods that were high risk, those neighborhoods by definition were neighborhoods that have high, had high concentration of black people in them, right? When they create that dynamic, those neighborhoods end up getting under, uh, end up um, being under invested in, and then that under investing dynamic continues, right? So if we were to layer that 1930s era redlining map over the contemporary, over contemporary Baltimore space, we find that most of the social ills that, uh, that afflict Baltimore residents are most intense in those neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s, right? And we just don't have the institutional regime to really, really replace that. So there are other structural dynamics to consider but that political dynamic that gives the mayor a lot of power, particularly over the Board of Estimates, which makes a lot of development deals, and then that segregation dynamic, which creates this race and class uh, kind of uh, hyper-segregation in the current moment. Those two dynamics, you have to talk about them, not just with the schools, which is what we're talking about now. Uh, you have to talk about them if you're talking about policing and then a range of other issues. To what degree, even if you did have an ideal mayor in there, does capital mobility, especially given the intense metropolitan level segregation, class and race segregation in Baltimore, tie their hands? Like, To to what degree do we need to look beyond the city level ultimately to to solve the problems that afflict every city I can think of? So one thing, in, um, and I mentioned David Harvey in the piece. David Harvey actually uh, actually came up with a number of his ideas about kind of a, a, a Marxist-oriented geography while in Baltimore. Uh, and while I critique him hardcore, if you're listening, you're wrong. <laughs> David, if you're listening, you're my man, but you're so wrong on this. He totally ignores <laughs> racial dynamics, right? I mean, totally, totally. And you keep on doing it, David. I love you, but you keep on doing it. Um, but I'm, ha- thing- I'm having I'm having him on soon. I will I will convey that 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 question to him. I'll say I was speaking to your former colleague from Hopkins, Lester Spence, and um, he had a question, and he'll know it's coming. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, he'll, he'll know. Um, but one of the things he really gets right is he talks about the ge- uh, the geographical dynamics of capital mobility, right? Where if you've got um, an actor like, uh, let's say, Under Armour. I've written about Ed- Under Armour before, where Under Armour can kind of, even though it's got a headquarters in Baltimore, it can just kind of pick up and leave, right? I mean, similarly, if you just look at the sports teams, the Orioles and the Ravens, even though they've got really significant uh, fan bases, um, they can just up and leave. In fact, the Ravens used to be the Cleveland Browns, right? That puts political officials who are um, who are up for re-election in part based on uh, the, the economics of the city that places places them kind of in a bind. So they are. It's extort. It's extortion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So they are hamstrung. Uh, they are hamstrung. But yet and still, even with that, we know that there is variance, right? So every now and then, um, you've got political officials who are elected. And they actually are able to wield the power of the state to demand more from citizens. We can talk, they, I, mean, I mean, sorry, to demand more from corporations and higher income earners, right? So one way to think about that is just across time. So again, it's worth noting that in the 70s, you actually have political officials in Baltimore who even as they were subsidizing, uh, giving, uh, giving 
given even as they were giving subsidies to uh to corporations they were saying wow you have to do with this money what we tell you right um so that's across time and we've lost that we can get that back uh secondarily if you look across space you can say that there are actually political officials who are doing who are attempting to do more by, um, by either trying to do more to hold corporations accountable or and or using public resources for different forms of economic organization. So here what um, what stands out is the work that uh, Chokwe and Lumumba is trying to do in Jackson. So yes, they are hamstrung. And to that extent, we're going to have to go above the city, mm-hmm. but there's still variance. And then secondarily, uh, and actually not secondarily, but also, and perhaps most importantly, the city is the space that people can it's, it's the it's the scale at which people can really touch government mm-hmm. so if we so it just makes sense to be the to be ground zero as opposed to going up a scale to either the state or the or the the, uh, the national level where people can't really touch it and see it in the same way i just finished uh reading finally somehow for the first time in my life poor people's movements and that's really an argument that they make really clearly is that the the most effective action happens most close to poor people's lives institutions that they can disrupt you know it's like oh why you know why are these welfare recipients disrupting welfare offices instead of lobbying in congress it's like well because the welfare offices are in their communities yes that's it that's it so even as, as 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 tough as it is you know if we start local even given the challenges we can build the networks of solidarity. We can actually socialize people to think about politics in a different way. We can actually show people what alternatives look like, and they can articulate, begin to articulate alternatives themselves. And then what you can do is just then lash that up with uh, other local uh, attempts, both nearby and then um, afar. But, but you would agree that, that it would take lashing those together at a higher scale to restrain capital mobility and take thus take the boot off of localities neck yes um the the, cha- the challenge though and this is uh, i appreciate your um your podcast for a number of reasons the, the the challenge though is that it's just hard to think about this is where the racial dynamic comes in and mm-hmm. I, i've listened to every episode you've had and and a number of people have tried to think through what that looks like but that's the thing we really have to kind of problem solve right because there are issues that uh, poor whites face outside of the city of Baltimore that are similar to, if not the same as, the problems that uh, predominantly uh, black and increasingly Latino populations face in Baltimore, right? But there's still this kind of symbolic, symbolic dynamic uh, that makes it really hard to organize um, it's, 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 it's easy to organize across cities, right? I mean, there's still yeah. challenges, but, but putting together people from Baltimore, Detroit, and Oakland in a room, even though they're in very different places, then it's kind of the same space. And they can easily see the problems, right? Like, wow, these problems are just like the problems I have, right? Let's do something about this. But then all those spaces in between, it's really, really hard to organize them, particularly particularly once the manufacturing sector leaves and people aren't working in the same spaces, right? So that that's the thing we have to kind of figure out. Which leads to something that I've 
discussed a bunch with Philly organizer Nizhmi Zarenko, who's really involved in Pennsylvania statewide organizing right now, and makes me wonder, is there is there statewide organizing taking place in Maryland that is building alliances between city-based movements and people in the suburbs and and there are rural Maryland Maryland's small but there are plenty of rural areas too there are uh, I know for a while uh, there's actually uh, some of it's kind of electoral right so you've got um, working families I think that's the group that helped um, elect the Blasio in uh, New York you've got uh, a growing uh, sec- uh, working families group here You've got uh, more traditional, well, not traditionally, but in response to Trump, you've got a number of indivisible chapters. Um, But thinking about the dynamics that flipped uh, the city council, right, you're talking about a combination. I'm calling it Black Lives Matter just because you've got national listeners, but it's not really Black Lives Matter, uh, but it's kind of, you know, organizing around similar issues. Um, you've got that dynamic, and then you've got Occupy Baltimore. It's really those two political forces that generated the most change in in Baltimore, and those two forces do not have, uh, do not and have not, because Occupy Baltimore no longer exists, but uh, don't have uh, similar organizations in the county or in or in this, or in in rural areas. They just don't exist. Which might explain why so much change was able to happen on city council and there are two utterly mediocre Democrats representing yes. Maryland yes. in the U.S. Senate. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. And and why, although the election hasn't been held yet, why it, it may be hard to, 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 to depose Hogan. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um yeah, I, I need to do a uh, Republican blue state governor episode. Like, what is up with Maryland and Massachusetts? <laughs> yeah, what, like, yeah. who does that? <laughs> who does, who does, that's what you call it. Who does, a whole segment? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you about a a passage I really liked, or two passages that I've cobbled together in, into one from your essay. In this section, you argue that that what's going on in Baltimore is more than the a new Jim Crow. And you write, what we're, wit- what we're witnessing in Baltimore is not so much a racial dynamic as a race and class dynamic, with the school system increasingly serving neighborhoods that are both majority black and majority poor. In contemporary Baltimore, black and white lower income residents do not serve as an exploited labor population as such because the city's economy no longer has a place for their labor. Rather, they serve as a population that needs to be cordoned off and controlled. Indeed, even as the city faced a fiscal crisis, Baltimore business owners implored political officials not to slash police spending. Tell me a little bit about how the tourism service economy in the city and the carceral state in the city it it seems like what you're arguing is they're sort of like mutually constitute the reality of present day Baltimore. They're flip sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. So if you read that um, Justice Department, the report the Justice Department made of uh, of the Baltimore uh, City Police Department, which is really, really, really corrupt. Uh, one of the things that you find that really uh, speaks to this is that 
the two districts that uh, saw the most spending and the heaviest policing was the district that Freddie Gray uh, spent most of his life in and was killed in. Um, that's the Harlem Park, uh, the Harlem district that includes uh, uh, Harlem Park, and then the Central Business District, right? Um, you know, which includes the the Inner Harbor and everything, you know, everything around it, right? So what you have is a dynamic where, you know, and that and that really is it. It's like police policing the Central District in order in order to protect capital, and then uh, policing that district with Freddie Gray in it to actually cordon off and kind of surveil that district. And it's not a coincidence that it, that that district is also the district that spends the most money on incarceration. I believe they spend uh, approximately like $17 million. One thing that has always struck me about Baltimore, I mean, segregation both with inside cities and at the metropolitan level is the norm in the United States. But Baltimore segregation to me has always stuck out in a few ways. One, the way that it's sort of patchwork. It's not it's not as it doesn't feel quite as as coherent <laughs> as it does in other areas. Yeah. It'll be like a, for example, like a, a strip just coming up from the inner harbor up up the hill. Um, that goes for like two blocks on either side of the strip. So it's like, think of like on the map, it's like a long rectangle or something that's relatively white and more affluent and then lower income black neighborhoods to both sides of it. So that's always stuck out to me about Baltimore. Then Finley market, the fact that, 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 that white Baltimore is so serious about segregation that they're willing to totally abandon a historic food market like that, except for one small corner, I think speaks volumes. (laughs) So Baltimore is really, yeah, particularly given, so I've lived in or around um, three major cities, uh, like Detroit, um, St. Louis, and Baltimore. Um, And so Baltimore is racially segregated like both of them, but Detroit uh, is now like 85% black, even with significant significant, uh, number of whites coming back into the city. And it's like as soon as the city tipped, you know, uh, as soon as the city tipped to become majority black, whites fled in droves, and the neighborhood stuff didn't matter. St. Louis is segregated, but it's it's majority black, but it's not majority, um, but it's not um, majority black like Detroit. It's majority black, kind of like Baltimore, like maybe 65, 30, 40, uh, 35, or 60, 40. And in, in St. Louis, it's north side, south side, where uh, the north side is predominantly black. The south side is uh, predominantly white, although it's changing. Baltimore, you've got this, um, what more my colleague Lawrence Brown calls like a white L black butterfly dynamic, right? Where you've got um, kind of, you, you do have segregation where blacks in general are concentrated in certain places compared to whites, but neighborhoods still matter. So you still got a number of these neighborhoods that are predominantly black right next to or really, really near these individual neighborhoods that are predominantly white and or wealthy, right? So, and that's something that does make it unique. And I do think it's a kind of a holdover from neighborhood politics and neighborhood policies going back to the beginning of the 20th century. I wonder if any of the kind of leaders of the urban growth machine in in the city have had second thoughts about the Inner Harbor development strategy because it seems to have undermined what would have been a 
more even gentrification of the downtown area because it's remarkable. You step out of the Inner Harbor into a downtown that would be heavily gentrified in Philadelphia, for example, yeah. and and the buildings are abandoned, like right outside of the Inner Harbor. I don't know if still, oh. but like a year or two ago. Oh, interesting. Interesting. It's kind of like a almost a weird. There's a concept in um, I think it's arch- it's geography or urban planning called like a double donut. It's a, like you've got huh. this, you know, constant. You've got this concentrated concentrated development. Then you have this really really open space, and then you have concentrated development. You've got this open space. But usually, when people are doing talking about a double donut, they're talking about actually metropolitan regions, not a city itself. So what you're talking about, and actually as I think about it, you're absolutely right. The Inner Harbor is deeply developed, then you just, just walk a little bit, and it's like nothing. And then you walk a little bit, it's, it's, still not, not, it's still nothing, but it's like filled with kind of poor black residents, and then you just rinse and repeat. Um, I think, I think, I don't think people are rethinking the inner harbor is a development strategy. I think people believe uh, the types of people you're talking about. I think people believe it was successful. Um, I think what people are trying to think through, though, is how do you take, how do you generate that type of success in other places, particularly given that even though the city seems to be giving money hand over fist to corporate developers, they don't really have. Uh, that much money to go around. So what you see now in this later move is them actually engaging with a range of institutional partners. Um, in the Baltimore case, uh, an entity like Johns Hopkins, who I work for, stands out, as does the Maryland uh, Institute of Contemporary Art, um, to develop corridors, right? And, 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 and to make them kind of artistic hubs in some places, uh, kind of like business development hubs in other places in order to spread some of that development love out beyond the confines of the inner harbor. And and that has its own, that has its own effects. It has its own effects for policing uh, because all of a sudden these neighborhoods that didn't see a certain type of police presence are getting it. And that ends up, um, that ends up generating problems, particularly for black working class populations. Um, and then it, uh, the, there uh, are other effects as well. It was nearly three years ago when Freddie Gray was killed and riots erupted in Baltimore. And Baltimore, the city, really dominated the national news for days, if not if not weeks. And that didn't the freezing students got got some attention on the internet and were a big deal in Baltimore, but were nothing like uh what happened after Freddie Gray died. And it's the sort of story I think that this Trumpicized 24-hour news cycle has obliterated for many people's consciousnesses this the persistent crisis, the ongoing crisis in places like Baltimore. Like alongside that, I think, is this acceleration of a long-running trend of people paying more attention to national than local news, where the drama in in the White House dominates the vast majority of what's in the newspaper. Wow. So um, as I was listening to you, I just kind of, and somebody else might have already used this phrase, but it, what what you're describing sounds like PTTSD. It's like <laughs> post-traumatic Trump stress disorder, <laughs> right? Where, yeah. where part of it is we're being deluged 
by story after story after story after story, and it's kind of rendering us numb and demobilizing us in a certain way. So even a story like this that would normally have legs, it just ends up getting replaced by some other story, uh, which is actually kind of, it, it's kind of, in a way, it's disheartening because one of the reasons I wrote this story in the first place is because what I wanted, what what I wanted us to do, like, so going back to the Freddie Gray uprising, and I call it an uprising rather than riot, because if you just look at it, for example, um, there was only maybe a million to two million dollars in property damage versus, you know, uh, some 600, 800 million in at Los Angeles and a somewhat similar number control for inflation and in something like Detroit 67. Like nobody killed. The only people who are hurt were police officers. Who did stand down? You're not just uh, saying it because you're a leftist who calls all riots uprisings. You're saying more specifically in this case, it really was more of a, yes. it really wasn't a yes. riot so much. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, yes, yes. So for people, if you were to actually be in Baltimore and look at where the stuff occurred, I mean, it's only just a couple of pockets. And those pockets were already uh, really in uh, disrepair, right? So, um, but but one of the challenges we had after the uprising was like, okay, how do we take this spike this spectacular event and then connect this to a larger history of structural violence, right? Where we can mobilize, get people to organize and mobilize around um, the day-to-day type stuff that's that's killing people silently over a long course of time and kind of invisibly, right? How can we do it? So I kind of wrote this piece in the same spirit. It's like, okay, we've got this spike. We've got all this attention about these kids who are free, uh, on these kids who are freezing, but there's this larger story of structural violence that's happening that we should be organizing around. But as I'm listening to you and then thinking of it myself, it's like what that, that spike wasn't anywhere near. I mean, granted, it's a different event, but that freezing kid spike didn't last long at all it wasn't even really a spike right where i mean we had a lot of people i hadn't heard of it until i read your article yeah 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 we had a lot of people attending meetings but i'm and i have to think about this a bit more but i think we already lost the the kind of mobilizing momentum we might have been able to gain from that moment in part because of pttsd and and it's (laughs) It's something that we're going to be dealing with. Um, I think we have to be prepared to deal with it for the next, uh, what, two and a a half, two and three quarter years, because we just can't work on the assumption that he's either going to die in office um, because he's old and and, and not healthy um, or that he's going to be somehow impeached. We we, we can't even we can't work on that. So it's it's really disheartening as I think about it. And I'm I'm not even really on the hope train, but it's like (laughs) it's like you're making it even. Yeah. The question of just how to make sense of politics, both analytically and in terms of action, in a way that that, that makes sense of what's going on in Washington, which does Mm -hmm. matter a lot, but but also staying grounded in in local, tangible realities and struggles at the same time. Yes. One of the reasons I'm glad that my career brought me to Baltimore is because Baltimore, I think, is one of the most progressive cities for its size in the country. I mean, we've really been able, if you were to talk to people who were doing organizing in the, in the 90s, they, you know, a number of them thought that Baltimore had no future. And then here we are, not only, you know, we can look at, we can look electorally and non-electorally and find all types of victories. 
But the challenge is that um, a, there's been a small number of people in organizations who've been doing the bulk of the work, and those people were already exhausted before we elected Trump, right? So then when Trump happens, not only are they exhausted, but but a range of other folk are, are exhausted. Now, that, now, on the flip side of that, as I mentioned earlier, there are organizations like Indivisible and similar organizations where you see all these people who all of a sudden are interested in being um, involved in politics, right? The Baltimore uh, Women's March, there were tens of thousands of people who turned out. But in the absence of some type of, some type of force to really to, or, or some type of institutional presence to generate long-term political participation and activism among in that group, we're not going to actually be able to get – it's going to be a, uh, a lot harder to generate the change we want to see in the world. Well, Lester Spence, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I got a great deal from Lester Spence is a political scientist at John Hopkins and the author of Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics, and Knocking the Hustle, Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that people are driven to riot by utter destitution and by the cool insolence of their masters... While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually, but not always, twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. If it's a nice review, it'll help introduce us to new listeners, which is a good thing. Another way to introduce us to new listeners is to tell your friends about it on the internet or, if possible, in real life. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Lastly, please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 